Well, I think a lot of people associate you with this dynamic style that seems to be popular in especially bouldering, uh, jumping and twisting and catching a hold in exactly the right position. And when you watch things like Dreamcatcher and the arch, what are you calling yeah. that? The es Espontas. Espontas. Yeah. That jump in particular, your body is launching so far and you're arriving in a position that's exact. And if your legs were just a little bit too um, inside the arch, What you were just listening to was Lynn Hill talking to Chris Sharma about his uber-dynamic climbing style and technique. And she specifically mentions S. Pontus, which makes sense, because this interview took place shortly after the film King Lines came out in 2007. King Lines followed Chris Sharma traveling the world looking for the hardest and most beautiful rock climbs that he could find. It's frankly required watching for any climber. It was also, for me, the first climbing film that I ever saw, and I still viscerally remember my mind exploding out of my head while watching the final scenes. It shows footage of Chris climbing Espontus. That's the route that's mentioned in the interview. And in the middle of the climb, he does this insane all-points-off dyno, which, in my opinion, is the greatest dynamic move in the history of climbing. And this really was a watershed moment. It was the most popular climber of the day, doing one of the hardest climbs in the world in an absolutely incredible location. It's a 100-foot route on a natural limestone arch off the coast of Mallorca. But that dyno, like, wow, it is just absolutely amazing. And I think that it solidified that dynamic style as a mainstream climbing style. With the way that my mind works, I see something like that, and I can't help but wonder, where did that come from? Like this wild, dynamic, bouldery style. How did it start? Where were its beginnings? And what's cool is that there is actually a very specific time, and place, and even a very specific route where hard dynamic climbing was born. You could actually go there and you could do the world's first hard dyno. Although, quick disclaimer, you do need to be able to climb V9 in order to do it. And another thing that, in my opinion, is equally fascinating is how dynamic climbing ended up spreading beyond that first route. It could easily have become just a random thing that one person did but then didn't really go anywhere, or at least at that time, I should say. So, welcome to A Brief History of Climb. I'm James Howell, and today we're going to learn about the exact origin of hard dynamic climbing. So Jenny Lake is a beautiful crystal clear lake that sits at the bottom of the Teton mountain range. And if you haven't seen them before, the Tetons are really impressive mountains. They just look epic. They're pointy and jagged, and they rise majestically up from the rolling Wyoming plains below them. And in the early 1950s, the Tetons were considered to be some of the most accessible and best mountains for climbing in the States. At that time, Yosemite was gaining popularity, but it was not quite yet the center of the climbing universe. So every summer, the biggest names in climbing at the time, people like Bob Camps and Avant Chouinard, they would make the pilgrimage to the Tetons. Another person who made that pilgrimage was John Gill. 
1956, when he first arrived in the Tetons, he was 19 years old, 191 centimeters tall, and somewhat unassuming. Although in the biography about him, Master of Rock, one of his climbing partners said that if he moved in the slightest, he rippled and bulged. Like everyone else there, his plans were to climb the larger mountain walls, and really that's what climbing was all about in those days. In fact, until around the 1970s, the, Alpine, the American Alpine Club's official stance was that if something didn't have a summit, you didn't really do a climb. Also at that time, aid climbing was the most common style, aka pulling on gear like pitons to get through difficult sections. Some free climbing was done when they were able to, but it was mostly slow static movements on easier terrain. All that being said, purely for fun and practice, on rest days and evenings, some climbers would climb the boulders at the south end of Jenny Lake. And the first time that Yvonne Chouinard said to John Gill, hey, do you want to go bouldering? That was the first time that Gill had ever heard that term before. Bouldering was by no means a new activity for climbers. In fact, the term bouldering had been used since around the 1880s in Britain, and in most climbing areas, there's usually some form of bouldering that could be done, even if it's just traversing the bottom of the crag. But the important thing to remember is that it was always seen as purely practice climbing. Nobody considered it a discipline that would be done for its own sake. John Gill, he would eventually go about changing that view forever. And it was at Jenny Lake that he would do it. So beside the lake, there were three boulders. Cutfinger Rock, which was named that because it was sharp. Falling Ant Slab, which was named that because apparently the slab got so steep that ants would fall down it, which I personally find surprising. And lastly, Red Cross Rock. And it was on those three boulders that John Gill began to see an overlap between his two favorite activities, rock climbing and gymnastics. Here he is talking about it in an interview from 1982. Rock climbers had primarily concentrated on getting up to the top of something, something relatively difficult. Form and style really didn't matter that much. But I saw that one could treat small rocks, boulders, small cliffs, outcrops as apparatus much as the gymnast works on the parallel bars, the high bar, and so on, you could develop a boulder route so that it essentially is a gymnastic performance. Okay, so let's back up a bit because there are some fascinating points about John Gill's gymnastic training. When I heard this, I initially pictured him throwing himself around on parallel bars and vaults and things like that. But he actually had a very different focus. And in his words, it was incredible preparation for hard dynamic moves on rock. Rope climbing. Since the 1970s or so, competitive rope climbing has pretty much gone out of fashion, but back in John Gill's day, it was still a major part of gymnastic competition. And he was incredibly good at it. Starting from sitting, like literally sitting on the ground and without feet, he could climb a 20-foot rope in 3.4 seconds, which is only half a second shy of the world record. By effectively campusing a rope over and over again, he developed heaps of explosive body strength, and he still considers rope climbing to be the number one thing that prepared him for the quantum leaps in climbing difficulty that he would do at Jenny Lake. 
Additionally, he worked extensively on the rings. He would do feats of strength like the cross mount and the front lever. And these were less climbing specific, but they still focused on control and strength and balance and endurance, which he really saw as excellent conditioning for rock climbing. By 1957, a year after he started going to the Tetons, he was actually spending more time bouldering on the practice rocks by Jenny Lake than on the bigger walls. And he begins to notice a problem. He notices that difficulty standards in gymnastics are far higher than they are in bouldering. And he starts to see that dynamic movement could be a key to pushing standards in bouldering. He thinks that both disciplines are actually similar physically. They require power and balance and momentum, so why not apply the techniques of one to the other? By doing this, he recognizes that, quote, there could be tremendous strides made in improving the levels of climbing difficulty. Already by 1957 and 1958, he was putting up boulder problems with harder moves than anything done on ropes at the time. In his writing, he actually outlines some of the moves that he was experimenting with. The first one is called a free aerial. This is where he would spring directly from a set of hand and footholds partly up an overhanging boulder. He'd disconnect entirely from the rock, and he would grab onto a much higher hold. That all points off Dono that Chris Sharma does on Espontis. That is what John Gill called a free aerial. Today, we call it a dino. Another was a levered spring, and honestly, I find this one to be quite interesting. I'm not quite sure if people still do this, but on the rings, he developed a lot of pressing power. And with this move, he would jump upwards, either from footholds or from the ground, and as he went higher, he would turn his hand and push down on the starting handhold. This gave him more control, and it allowed him to reach much higher than a normal jump. He liked this more than the free aerial because of that additional control that he got. But his favorite dynamic move he called the swinging lieback, and it was using this move that he changed the future of hard climbing forever. Here's what happened. On the four meter tall east face of Red Cross Boulder, beside Jenny Lake, there was a gray overhanging bulge of slippery granite. And basically, this bulge, it lacked holds. There was a decent edge fairly low, and back in the 50s, there was pretty much nothing on the bulge itself. This is kind of interesting, but in the years after he did the climb, a small micro edge has appeared on the bulge. This was likely manufactured by a climber who likely had a small ego and did not like having to do the big move. But when Gil did it, there was no usable edge on the bulge. Way out of reach above the lip, almost six feet away, there was only a dime-sized hold and nothing else. So how does he climb it? With his left hand, he grabbed the decent lower edge just beneath the bulge. His right foot towed a small edge somewhere around knee height. And that's where the lieback name comes from. He's kind of in a lieback position with opposition between his left hand and right foot. If there was a crack or holds that continued to go up this thing, he could keep on using that opposition to make progress. But there were no more holds until the top. So he sprang upward by pushing off the small foothold while also pulling hard with his left hand. With his free foot, he did a swinging upward motion for extra momentum. According to Gill, this was no jump, but a smooth upward motion. 
He failed what he was about to do multiple times, and it took him a few visits to the boulder to get the timing right, but eventually he did it and he snagged the tiny hold above the lip. A few seconds later, he's standing on top. In the future, we would call this kind of move a dead point. And for modern hard climbers like Chris Sharma, this would become an essential move to master for hard overhanging climbing. Now, this is important. Historians agree that on that day, Gil did the first hard dynamic move in climbing history. The climb is called the Gill Problem, and it's rated V9, the first of the grade and a quantum leap in climbing difficulty. And despite the fact that this feat was completely overlooked by the climbing community at large, Gill knew that, quote, it represented a kind of climbing paradigm breakthrough. He knew that he would be able to keep doing this in order to continue pushing standards, and he knew that other climbers could also use this and continue carrying dynamic climbing forward. To put this in perspective, the late 50s were known as the 510 era of American climbing. I mean, climbers were really just starting to push into that level of difficulty. But then here's John Gill doing a V9 boulder problem, which if converted to the Yosemite decimal grading scale would clock in around 513 plus. These moves were insanely ahead of their time. For a direct comparison, Midnight Lightning, which is one of the most famous boulder problems in the world and still considered a test piece today, was climbed 19 years later, and it only takes the V8 grade. It would be decades after he did this problem that through historical analysis, people would begin to see how incredible John Gill really was. But at the time, people didn't really get it. After he sent the boulder, he walked to the park ranger's cabin and he told some people about what he had done. He was actually fairly well known around the cabin because he would use the door jams there to practice fingertip front levers, once again just totally ahead of his time. According to Gill, the people were polite and somewhat responsive, but in general, they didn't really know how to comprehend his weird divertisements. Here's him speaking about this later in life from the film Brave New Wild. You know, people like Royal and uh, Yvonne and, and several others, they enjoyed bouldering. Uh, considered a terribly serious activity, though. They would kind of shake their heads and say, well, you know, we're going up on this thousand-foot ridge, make first ascent on Grand Teton or Middle Teton or something like that, you know. And, and here you are, you know, piddling around with a 10, 15, 20-foot boulder. They just kind of shook their head. <laughs> so shaking their heads and not getting it, that was one thing. But others saw his style more negatively. Many began calling him just a boulderer, or an oddball, cheating even. And they thought that he was wasting his talents on climbing these pathetic rocks instead of bigger objectives. The term false technique began to be used to describe dynamic climbing. There's also a famous quote about him from the early 1960s, which reads, The big boulders at the north end of Jenny Lake provide a great deal of unconventional climbing, where the most expert tumble from holds that no sane man would ever use on a mountain. But to me, this is where we start to see the beauty of John Gill. He had that amazing trait that so many of us wish we had. He didn't care what others thought about him and he kept pursuing what he thought was a better way. 
he continued to search for overhanging boulders that motivated him to try hard. In the next few years, he did more hard routes that would take years to be repeated, like the thimble and the scab in the needles of South Dakota, along with a number of other hard problems at Jenny Lake. Almost always, he was alone and trying hard. An interesting question comes out of this, though. How did he get this style of climbing to spread? I mean, after all, it wouldn't be a very easy task. Think about it. This guy is stronger than everyone else. He's doing problems light years ahead in a style that nobody else is using and that won't be repeated for decades. And the climbing community, they don't really care about bouldering anyway, especially when they're just getting shut down on all of his problems. So what happened there? Well, John Gill separated his climbing career into three phases, and what we have been discussing today all fall into the first phase. In phase one, his main motivator for climbing was difficulty. What was the hardest climbing that he could do? But then, beginning in 1961, things changed. He became more focused on his mathematics career and his new family. He also moved a bunch throughout the 1960s for work. He lived in places like Alabama and Kentucky and New York and Colorado, among some other places. And at that time, climbing was not his biggest priority. But if he had time, he would seek out new boulders and specifically find problems where he could practice dynamic climbing. In the second phase here, he was more interested in form and control while doing dynamic moves. Difficulty apparently didn't matter as much to him. If the problems ended up being difficult, which for sure many of them were, that's great. But style and pure dynamic movement became more of a passion for him. His climbs were still absolutely hard for their day, but seemingly more achievable than his earlier years. Here's an example. In 1967, he moved to Colorado and he began exploring Horsetooth Reservoir for boulders. And it's there that he discovered some of his most famous problems on boulders that he named the Mental Block and the Eliminator. All of the routes that he put up included big, dynamic, and hard moves. Climbs like the Pinch Route and Left Eliminator, both going at V5, are considered absolutely legendary boulder problems. And in the future, climbing legends like Jerry Moffat and John Backer and Fred Nicole, they would come specifically to try those historic problems. Not only that, but during the second phase, John Gill didn't only want to climb the boulders. He started to think of ways to get bouldering and dynamic climbing to grow. So starting in the early 1960s, right at the beginning of this second phase of his climbing, whenever he did a new climb, he began to use a chalk to paint a small white arrow at the bottom of his problems. They indicated roughly where to start the problems and what directions they go. And in terms of spreading his style of climbing, these arrows would become very influential. By the late 1960s, there was a small but dedicated group of boulderers who would specifically follow the Gill Trail of Little White Arrows, and they would try and repeat all of his problems. They were known as Gill's Disciples, and they will definitely be a focus of a future episode of this podcast because they're almost equally as badass and influential while also being mostly unknown. 
Lastly, he also developed a grading system known as B-Grades. It's no longer used today, and frankly, it's quite a flawed system, but it gave climbers some context and something to shoot for. And Gill was very aware of that. In a 1979 interview, he mentions how, in the mid-60s, he wanted dynamic bouldering to grow, and he said that, quote, that was one way to get hotshot rock climbers interested. Give them a rating and draw little arrows. And it worked. Bouldering and dynamic climbing steadily grew in popularity year after year since then. Unfortunately, by 1969, Gill had developed what was likely the first ever case of climber's elbow. He had to step back from climbing, not forever, but for a little while. Either way, the dynamic climbing revolution was firmly underway at that point. Others had stepped up to keep it spreading. What would have happened if John Gill simply drifted off after that first phase ended? I mean, who knows? But the future of hard dynamic climbing, it could have been totally different. That second stage of his life, when he began thinking about how to get his style of climbing to spread, it really changed the trajectory of climbing forever, probably even more so than his early hard ascents. I want to mention that if you have an interest in following the Gill Trail and doing a bunch of his boulders, I really recommend checking out the book Stone Crusade, A Historical Guide to Bouldering in America. It's by John Sherman, and the book is very rich with Gill's history and ascents across America. I leaned on it pretty heavily during the creation of this episode. And that's it for today's episode of Brief History of Climb. If you would like to support the show, please share it with someone that you think might enjoy it. That's the best thing that you could do for me and you want me to uh, continue building out these episodes. You can also follow my Instagram at Brief History of Climb for more climbing history. Please feel free to get in touch with me there and you can ask me any questions or give me some feedback. I would love that. Also, in the show notes, I'm going to share my sources and music credits. And once again, my name is James Howell. Thanks so much for listening, and I can't wait to see you next time. Bye-bye.